Chapter Three of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Three: The Town of the Good Indians. On Annette Island, just south of Ketchikan, is Metlakatla, the seat of one of the most remarkable experiments in the civilization of the red man. This is the town of the good Indians, established by Father William Duncan, whose wonderful work with these natives justified his title of the Apostle of Alaska. Father Duncan began life as a commercial traveler in England, and at 21 was well on his way toward a salary of $5,000 a year. He decided, however, to give up his work and become a missionary. He went to college expecting to be sent out to India, but instead he was ordered to the western coast of British Columbia to work with a tribe of Indians known as the Simpians. These Simpian Indians were then among the most barbarous of any on the North American continent. They believed in witch doctors and practiced cannibalism. They were hunters and fishers and clothed themselves in the skins of bears and wolves. In their weird dances they put the skulls of bears on their heads. Their medicine men wore hideous masks and tried to frighten off disease with horrible noises. If the demon of disease did not leave, the witch doctors would hack away the sore places with their knives, or suck or burn away the ailing flesh. Anyone they pointed out as possessed of evil spirits, or as a witch, was killed by his tribe. The Simpsians had also curious ideas regarding the treatment of their women. Young girls approaching womanhood were confined far away in isolated cabins, and when brought back, were supposed to have dropped down from the moon and to be ready for marriage. On such occasions, there were great feasts at which the youths of the tribe were initiated into dog-eating, cannibalism, and devil-dancing. The Indians believed in spirits and the transmigration of souls. When Father Duncan arrived in Victoria on his way to this work, he was told by the agent of the Hudson's Bay Company that if he went, he would beyond doubt be killed. When Duncan still insisted, he said, Well, my good man, if you are to be killed and eaten, I suppose you are the one most interested, and we shall have to let you do as you wish. With this permission, Father Duncan was allowed to go to Fort Simpson in British Columbia, not far from Prince Rupert. On his way up the beach to speak to the officer in charge at the Fort Stockade, he came to a place where the remains of a number of human beings were scattered about, and was told that the bodies he saw had been hacked to pieces and thrown on the sand in a fight between two parties of savages a few days before. At that time, many of the tribes along the coast of British Columbia were cannibals, and Father Duncan actually saw a band of Indians on the beach eating a boy who had died of tuberculosis, and he had every reason to believe that a woman he saw killed was disposed of in the same fashion. Here is his own account of the latter incident. I had heard of the cannibalism, and one day an officer of the fort ran into my house and told me that the Indians were about to kill one of their women. He warned me to keep indoors and said that I would surely be killed if I attempted to interfere. A moment later, another man rushed in and said that the woman had already been killed. We went out to the beach where there was a crowd of Indians. They were divided into two bands, each led by a stark naked brave. All were howling horribly. They had killed a woman and cut her in two, and each of the nude Indian leaders was carrying half of the woman's body by his teeth. 
as we came up the band separated each gathering around its leader they sat down on the sand so crowded together that i could not see when they got up not a vestige of the woman was to be seen what became of the flesh i do not know but i believe it was devoured i doubt however whether it agreed with them for the officers of the hudson's bay company fort nearby told me that it was the custom of the indians after every such cannibal feast to come into the post the day following and buy large quantities of epsom salts in those early days there were several attempts to kill father duncan on one occasion a tribal chief demanded that the mission school be closed because his beautiful daughter was just about to drop down from the moon to be married the chief said that she had gone away and would come back in great state she would drop from the moon into the sea and would rise out of the water with a bearskin over her shoulders and thus appear to the people at this time there would be many ceremonies that would prevent the school being kept open father duncan refused to close the school and the chief persisted in his demands at last on the day before the feast he sent two men with long knives to kill the missionary whose life was saved by a friendly indian who had taught him the native language the school was kept going the missionary kept steadily at his work until he had converted eight or nine of these tribes to the christian religion and made them about the most law-abiding and civilized people of the indian race to belong to father duncan's community the indians did not have to promise to become christian but they did have to agree that they would drink no liquor that there should be none of the performances of the medicine men over the sick and that they would do no work on sunday they had their own council and governed themselves they had their own boats and they established a canning factory and put up salmon for shipment they learned to make ropes and brushes to weave and to spin father duncan went to england and brought back musical instruments and they established a brass band they had a schoolhouse and a church with an organ which some of them were able to play they had their market house their shops their carpenters tinners coopers and other mechanics what it has taken ages to accomplish with other uncivilized peoples these indians under father duncan achieved in less than thirty years then the church of england began to meddle with duncan's mission sending a bishop to rule over him and the indians finding that his work was being undone father duncan asked the united states to allow his indians to settle on our territory that was in eighteen eighty seven the matter was much agitated in the united states father duncan was supported by henry ward beecher phillips brooks and others and through their efforts a territory was allotted to him and his indians on the northwestern side of annette island they came in august and the first thing they did was to erect a flagpole and hoist the stars and stripes they had speeches by the united states commissioner of education and by father duncan and later on divine service consisting of song and praise in the simsian language the next day a portable sawmill was unloaded and the people began at once to clear the forests and erect buildings for their new homes they built a cannery and year by year added to their structures until they had a town hall a church a schoolhouse a store a public library and the other buildings necessary to a civilized community the settlement was called the new metlakotla and since then the indians have been known as the metlakotlans in eighteen ninety one annette island was set aside by congress as a reservation for them 
and it was provided that it should be used by them in common under such rules and regulations as might be prescribed by the Secretary of the Interior. Annette Island is one of the most beautiful parts of southeastern Alaska. It is 15 miles long and 10 miles wide, and is formed by a long wooded mountain on the backbone of which are a number of beautiful lakes. About the harbor of Metlakatla, the land slopes gently down to the sea. Here the trees have been cut away and a few hundred acres have been cleared and divided up into town lots. On the left of the harbor, a silvery cascade tumbles down the side of the mountain. It comes from Lake Chester, a short distance inland and 850 feet above the sea. The most conspicuous building in Father Duncan's settlement is a great white frame structure with two towers. This is the Westminster Abbey of Metlakatla. It is Father Duncan's church and was built by the Indians at a cost of $12,000. It is the largest church in Alaska and seats 500 people. On the left of the church is the public school erected by the United States, and still farther away are Father Duncan's 12-room guesthouse, his office, his school, and the great store he built to supply the needs of the people. Right at the dock is a salmon cannery with a capacity of about a million cans a year, which has at times been a very profitable undertaking, giving work to all the people and bringing in a good revenue to the colony. Connected with it is a box factory, which turns out the 20,000 cases or boxes used for shipping the fish. At times, as many as 10,000 salmon have been handled in a day. One of the striking buildings of the new Metlakatla is the library and jail. This is painted in the colors of the American flag. The first story is bright red. It is the jail. The second story is snow white. It is the library. The cupola on the top is blue. Close to the beach and running back from it toward the public buildings are the homes of the people. There are several hundred of them, all built by the Indians with money earned in the community enterprises established by Father Duncan. The houses are cottages of one and two stories. They have glass windows, porches, and comfortable surroundings. Each has a lot about 80 feet front and 90 feet deep, and every family has its garden. The community has its own preachers and public speakers. Some of the sermons in the Simpson language are full of eloquence and beauty. Here, for instance, is one urging the people to believe that the Savior will take care of them. Brethren and sisters, you know the eagle and its ways. The eagle flies high. The eagle rests high. It always rests on the highest branch of the highest tree. We should be like the eagle. We should rest on the highest branch of the highest tree. That branch is Jesus Christ. When we rest on him, all our enemies will be below and far beneath us. Another preacher, who had formerly been vicious and high-tempered, speaking of himself, said, I will tell you what I feel myself to be. I am like a bundle of weeds floating down the stream. I was going down with all my sin, like the weeds, covered with earth and filth. But I came to the rapids, when, lo, there was a pole stuck fast and firm in the rock, and I clutched at the pole, and there I am now. The stream is passing by and washing away my filth. Christ to me is the pole, I hold to him and am safe. I might cite other quotations to show the civilization, intelligence, and piety of the Metlakotlans. They are far above the average of their race, and they are now aspiring to a higher education, to full United States citizenship, and to ownership of land in severalty. 
Under the regulations fixed by the Secretary of the Interior, the Indians govern their colony through a council of twelve, elected annually, and their church is directed by twelve elders, also chosen by vote of the people. From reading the following translation of the Lord's Prayer into Simpson, one gets some idea of what it means to work with these Indians in their own language. The following paragraph, which is a translation of the Lord's Prayer into the native dialect, will not be read. End of chapter 3